Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. The team is the most important part of launching an e-commerce brand. Today, I'm chatting with Ari Murray, aka my wife, but also the one of the best e-commerce operators and marketers I know. She is currently the director of growth at Charm Brands, but she also ran e-commerce for Poosh by Kourtney Kardashian, About Face by Halsey, Press Juicery, and Snack Nation. Today, we chatted about what to think about before launching a brand, why performance marketing should own the website, and how we met. Look forward to you hearing this episode. Welcome to episode 100 of the Marketing Millennials podcast. And today I decided to bring on a special guest, my wife, and one of the best marketers and e-commerce operators I know, Ari Murray. Welcome, Ari. Thank you, Daniel Murray. It's a pleasure to be here 100 episodes later. So it's a real honor. Ari, I know your story, but the audience doesn't. How did you get into marketing? So I kind of fell into it by accident. I had always planned to be a lawyer. Every man in my entire family are lawyers, and they all seem to live great lives. So I had always, from the time I was five, planned to have been a lawyer, got straight A's, tried really hard, got to law school. And my first semester of law school was like quite the the wake-up call that I was definitely doing something I didn't want to do. And I sort of panicked and found the first job I could find, which is what allowed me to drop out of law school. And that was as a customer service rep at a growing B2B and e-commerce snack company called Snack Nation. And it's history from there. Awesome. And that's just fun fact. That's where I met Ari at Snack Nation. But Ari, I want to get into the more tactical stuff. You don't want to tell them how we met in the cute love story? Nope, not today. Um, that's for another episode. You're really passionate about launching e-commerce brands and you're one of the best there as of doing that. When you're launching an e-commerce brand, what are your steps to start? How do you think about it? Well, there's a lot of steps and it really depends on who the brand is, who their customer is hopefully going to be, and then also where they are in the process. So when I've come onto brands in the past, they could have been a year out from launch or some brands we launch are six months or even six weeks out from launch. And some of them are late stage where they have a website and design and they're ready to just implement their tech stack and sort of think about that go-to-market plan. And some of them are starting from square zero where they have a product and not much else. So it really depends. But it all kind of comes down to budget, timing, and growth expectations, then also just understanding each vertical. So if we're going to launch on D2C only, so on their owned website only, are we going to launch in tandem with a big retailer? Are we going to have an IRL or a, like retail push? It really kind of is always different, which is what makes it really fun and also quite stressful sometimes. Yeah, and I've seen that stress firsthand, so... <laughs> I, um, <laughs> So let's just take one step back and say we're launching just D2C only, no retail push. 
they have a good product already and they come to you, what are your steps to setting that up? What are the first things that you start setting up? First thing we do is present typically an audit of whatever has already been designed and dev'd. So let's say they come with a website that they think is ready or almost ready for launch or a design that they're going to get developed that will be their launch theme. And the first thing we'll do is sort of attack it just to make sure that we can make like there's certain things I, I have to have on every website that I touch. And so if they're not present, we'll go in and we're like politely we'll suggest edits and changes. And the second part is making sure that we have the tech stack to support the scale that we're going for that's within our budget. So there's the Rolls Royce of tech stacks, which I love to run with and that I have been lucky to run with. And then there's also different partners you can tap for different things depending on the size and budget. So like I might have an SMS provider that I would prefer, but I would sometimes rather trade. I trade in and trade out parts of the tech stack just to make it all work as like a big slice of the pie. And so it's about laying the tech stack, laying the design, laying the analytics down. So that way you have all your pixels and you're able to really understand what's happening on the site that's launching. And then it's really about bringing in the right partners to think through what's going to happen on CRM. So email and SMS agencies, what's going to happen as we need to make changes to our theme, a good dev agency, what's going to happen as we think about our organic, that's a lot of O's, organic social. So we would think about how we'll present as a brand like on social and Instagram, on TikTok organically, and then also via paid. So laying the right agencies and partners down for that, and then thinking about what the go-to-market launch plan is going to be and how we'll sort of announce to hopefully the future super fans of the brand that we're here, we've arrived to get their credit cards ready, and that it's time to shop. So it's a lot of like tech meets launch planning meets partner planning. What is the, in your opinion, the greatest challenge of launching a brand in this right now? Is it the technical, the human, the the business, the product? What is something that is the greatest challenge of launching a brand? I would say always the biggest challenge of launching a brand, no matter the time or the climate, is the team. So there's always going to be a million opinions. And there's like a meme that we always love to talk about, which is like the 25 people who decided on the creative thought it lacked a singular vision. And I think that applies a lot to these types of plans where you come in and let's say, because I work for an agency, we have our own team of maybe 10 people that are touching the project. And then the brand itself might have a team of 30 people, some of which are super digitally forward, some of which might be really focused on the brand and on maybe doing things in a different way. And then also you might have investors and maybe it's a celebrity brand. So maybe there's a celebrity personality and there could be a lot of different people. So it's about rallying the team into like one big dream and then also making sure that the best decision wins no matter where it came from and kind of making sure that you're laying the right foundation of how the group will operate as a big unit so that the way customers don't skip a beat. So I'd say the team is one part. And the second part in this climate, at least for right now, there is a lot of saturation, which is really good because it means that D2C is caught on and there's a lot um, of opportunity but there's also only so many dollars that each customer in the world is willing to spend or each customer in the U.S. is willing to spend on D2C products a year. And so how do you convince your buyer and educate your buyer that 
this brand right now, right here is worth their money. And especially in times where, you know, it's not always abundance and booming. How do you make sure that your customer feels like what you're selling is valuable to their life and that they like it so much that they'll go tell a friend. And so that's kind of the biggest battle. I like that you said that the team is the number one thing and the number one challenge because my opinion on any tech stacks or any setting up something is you need the best person to run a tech stack. You need the best person to run ads. You need the best person to write copy. There's so many people today that just put up a Shopify store and expect it to sell or build a tech stack and think it's going to work how the vendor promises it's going to do or someone puts an ad and a Shopify store and expects that that ad to convert with it, no prior experience. So that's a great way to thing that you just said about a team being the number one thing, because I think especially in a startup land where you're betting on a market and you're betting on a product and you're betting on a strategy that should work, the number one thing you should look at is can this team execute or not? And that's probably why a lot of people come to Sharma Brands too. When you go and think through what you would want to launch or when a celebrity decides that they're going to sell X, they're normally deciding sometimes two or three years before it actually comes to market. And so they are negotiating with vendors and thinking through their P&L and their margins in the climate that they exist in then. But then when you think through what it actually takes or after iOS 14 or whatever will change and things will always change, there needs to be room for your plan to adapt before launch, at launch, after launch, and then forever. And so you have to have not just the right idea and the right team, but you also have to have the right business metrics in place to make sure that whatever you're going to go forward with is the best version and that will leave you room to not just sell at a high revenue number every year, but what are we taking home? What is our profit? And that's something that we love to help with and I love to help with at Sharma Brands because we think through not just how it's going to launch now, but how we're going to eventually like be able to help our partners exit this brand or to grow it times 10 or add extra zeros to their P&L. We just want to make sure we're being smart about how we operationalize whatever the plan is. Coming from a SaaS background, one thing that's harder in D2C is projecting products that are going to be sold when launched. So how do you think about that when launching? Well, how should people think about, okay, I'm about to launch this. How many products do I need in-house? How many products should I put on my website when I'm going to sell it? Should it be the whole inventory? Should it be 50% of the inventory? How do you go about thinking about that? It really depends. And I'd say if the the founder or the brand has some sort of legacy audience, let's say it's for a celebrity that has 100 million followers on Instagram, hopefully they've done something with that audience in the past and you're able to sort of see from past drops or from past projects how that audience behaves, where a lot of them live, what they were spending when they ordered last time. So let's pretend that they had sold t-shirts in the past and moved 4 million orders over the course of a year and each order was $57 and all orders were in the US. That would tell me a lot more than seeing that they had 100 million followers because I think we all live in an age where we now understand that a lot of followers doesn't always mean a lot of pull. 
And so there's some sort of forecasting that has to happen ahead of when we come in just so that we can have the right expectation so they can even produce the right inventory. And then the drop strategy of it is the really fun part. And for me, depending on what we're selling, I always like to start with few SKUs. So maybe like five SKUs, six SKUs, maybe four are individual and two are bundled that we've merchandised together. Kind of in the way I think that Hailey Bieber just launched her line Road, where she has six products and she has been talking about the skincare line for years, but I'm sure they've developed 20 SKUs, maybe more. But at launch, there's only so much you can teach people and there's only so much every customer can be expected to spend. And the last thing you'd want to do is have this big launch moment, show your hand, and then by the time you go develop a new SKU, it's 18 months out. And so you really need to think through what's going to happen at day one that's going to give us the momentum to get to day 30. And for me, that's almost best served with stocking out, wait lists, even early access to allow them to shop because you can set the expectation with your customer that if they don't set their alarm, it's not going to happen. And then keeping SKUs in reserve that no one's ever seen or heard of, dropping them sometimes with big campaigns that are fancy and in high production, and sometimes just spontaneously where your customer doesn't expect it. So that way they know they always have to keep their eye out. It really depends on what we're selling in the industry, but I would much rather come to market more often than expect my base to shop such a huge variety because you also then can't really decide what your hero ski will be before you go sell it which becomes an inventory issue and also you might let's say you have a makeup brand do you want to be known for your eyeshadow primer or do you want to be known for your lipstick and if you have an opinion on that you probably shouldn't show everything at once because your customers might get guided somewhere you didn't want them to go so it's a long-winded answer to say it all depends but for launches, more is more. And the more touch points um, and the more opportunities to have excitement and newness on site is a really good thing. I like the point you brought up about choice because there's the paradox of choice that too many options make people just overwhelmed and not do something. Like instead of being at the cheesecake factory trying to decide what to buy on your menu you're at in and out trying to buy, decide what you're going to choose so i feel like a ddc store should be more like in and out than cheesecake factory especially when launch i like that and also the marketing millennials audience i just want you to know daniel murray does not like the cheesecake factory i've taken him there i've shown him the brown bread i've showed him the miso salmon i've shown him the french fries the ranch dressing none of it appeals and so just so you know that for future episodes, who you're dealing with. One question I have for you is, what is a marketing hill you would die on? Probably that while I respect brand marketers, the growth team and your digital team should be responsible and your final approver on every aspect of your website, on all performance marketing, on all CRM, so email and SMS marketing. Basically, Anything that's not organic, I would want a growth marketer to make the final call on what's approved so that A, we're not spending 75 years in edit rounds and B, we're optimizing for what's going to ultimately sell. And that's not to disrespect brand marketers. I think brand marketing is why people love the brands they love, but people have to buy brands in order to be super fans and for businesses to survive. So I come in peace, but that is my 
strong, harsh opinion. And I've been on many teams where that hasn't been the case. And the teams I have been on where it's a really like hungry growth team that is in charge, better things have happened. So that's my hill. I'll stay there. I like it because I think you honestly need customers to have a brand. Otherwise, there's no brand. If you don't have customers, there's no brand. If you don't have revenue, the business dies. So there is a trade-off between those two. There's a balance. I think you need to have your why down and what you're selling and your story before you launch. But I think every little aspect and color and word in your copy doesn't need to be perfectly on brand if it's not converting. Thousand percent. Thousand percent. I know it's tough to predict what's going to happen a couple years from now, but what's one th- marketing trend that you're seeing that marketers should jump on right now? Channel diversification has always been important, but I don't think that just being on TikTok now counts as, yay, we've diversified. I think that audio is the future and channels that are less thumb-stopping and more experiential. And for now, I think that would be podcasts and audio dollars. I think those are going to win long-term. And I think before people were scared because sometimes it was hard to tie the ROI back to that channel and then to justify the spend and then they have their board and whatever. But I would put a lot of my spend into new channels, into out of home, into audio and see what happens because you just can't, you know, just rely on visual creative alone. People need to hear the story sometimes too. I mean, also, especially in D to C, as you've been seeing with Shopify and Shopify stock, a lot of brands were heavily attached to Facebook ads. And when Facebook ads drops, a lot of brand, when iOS 14.5 came out, a lot of brands started going downhill because that's because they relied on Facebook and growth and they weren't testing the TikToks out there, the audio channels, the out of home, the other touch points to build a brand. So I think, and to convert down, down line. So I think super important that you nail more than one channel at the end of the day, because you never know when Apple is going to have a privacy policy or, totally. and, and that's why own channels are so great. That's why like building up your email list, building yes. up your social, building up social following across a lot of the, I know that's not really owned, but I sometimes feel that's an owned audience until proven not. Um, right. Tell it goes uh, away. Yeah. Uh, but I still think you, you can own your distribution. You know when to send it. The followers are your followers and nobody else's followers. I think there's some owned aspects to it, but building up email, building up podcasts, building up these content-driven channels are always a great way to build. Well said. If someone was starting out right now in e-commerce, what is some advice that you would give them that they would come back five years from now and thank you for? Be the hardest working person in the room and not in a, I want to show my boss that I got here early and stay late because I hope that they'll like me more sort of a way. But in a, if I work really hard and if I do the work that's on my plate, maybe they'll trust me with better work and with things I don't yet know. And they'll trust me to learn them sort of a way. So I think that it's about raising your hand for projects. It's about working your way up. And it's about taking on as much as you can chew 
when you're young or when you're switching into a new industry because no one's going to go out of their way to teach you. But if you can prove that you are a self-starter, it's amazing how much people will trust you with that you'll be able to either learn yourself or that you can ask for help on. So I would say just like really get after it, but not in a sort of vanity way, but in a I'm learning so much and helping so much sort of a way. This is what Ari's done really well in her career because I've seen it, her grow in her career. But I think one thing she's done very well is been the most reliable and being the best person to work with. And she has a reputation of executing. And I think it also comes down to that. Like ideas are very great at the end of the day, but people want executors. They want people who can get shit done. And if you can make your boss look good at the end of the day, which Ari makes all her bosses look good. Um, I mean, that's how I started off my career too. So that's great advice for people doing is like cut, focus on executing first and then you can become that strategy person. Um, yeah. And you don't want to be the person who is in charge of all the decisions, but doesn't understand what it takes to do all the things you're asking for. And I think having been brand side and agency side, it's almost a joke how far some people can get kind of using the jargon and using the big words who don't know necessarily how to do the things that they're asking for. And I have always worked better with people who roll up their sleeves and also with executives who have been in the weeds and who understand their requests because it's just better for their team it's better for their business. And it's honestly, I think like a better look for your culture because you don't want your e-commerce manager to be like 99% of the execution and 1% of the strategy because that's not safe for your business if you're a digital brand. Who is someone in the e-commerce space or in the marketing space or any space that inspires you today? I would say... My friend, Carly Lieberman, who I work with at Sharma Brands, she's our creative director and she just handles so much at such a high level. And I trust her taste more than anyone's taste in the world. We egg each other on as we online shop. We approve video creative together. We brief creative together, but there's just so much she does on her own that is just so artistic and genius, but also really organized. And I think that you can never be, you know, in a better spot than when you have a good creative person on your team, because I can't design and I really am more analytical than I am artistic. And so Carly Lieberman is, is the best. People underestimate when your peers can also be some of your best inspiration in your career. I think a lot of us look for that CMO or that VP to be your mentor, but sometimes the person sitting right next to you at work or the your peer at another company that's doing the same things as you could be the one that actually inspires you way more than those other people. And you also teach me a lot, but I feel like that's sappy, but it's true. Danielle has taught me so much about marketing and going to dinner with us is like, you really aren't going to talk about a lot that doesn't somehow tie back to what we're working on. Cause that's always been our dynamic. So 
Daniel, I don't know if you all know this. He's quite a good marketer. So he's a good, uh, good team member to uh, be around. And I will give a shout out if you, Ari doesn't like to take credit for a lot of things. And that's why she's grown and made a lot of people look good. But yeah, the marketing millennials wouldn't have been able to grow the way it did without her being behind the scenes. And she isn't really behind. She is, she is one of the key members to, to make marketing millennials the, the success is becoming. So just so you know that she, she doesn't like when I give her credit, but she's one of the one people who made this special. So I'm Very glad. cute, Hobby. Thank you. Who has been your mentor in your career? Who's someone that you look to for advice? I've had a few and I'm lucky that they're not past tense. I still have them. And so I would say Jordan Narducci, who was my first boss in e-commerce, has taught me so much just about managing your business from an operational spreadsheet sort of a way where you're in marketing meetings, but you're also like really deep in your data. And I think Jordan has taught me so much there. And Nick Sharma, I don't know if you all know him, but he is the D2C guy. He's the best marketer ever. And he's taught me so much about marketing and also about just being on like a really healthy team and working with people who are all treated well and who have happy lives. He's just got so much energy. So I think being around people who are really hardworking and who know so much only makes you stronger. Um, but yeah, working for Nick has been definitely like the best thing that's ever happened to my career, just because I finally am somewhere where I love the work and I love the people, which is a hard thing to find. I agree. Nick Sharma is one of the the best out there. But I think what makes Sharma Brand so great is the combo of who works there too. Ari, Carly, and the whole team are just str- make it a strong team. And like we said, at the Ari said at the beginning, it's the team that makes a company so good and a marketing yeah. team so good and a launch so good. It's not just that one person who makes it great. Totally. The Sharma Brands team is unmatched. Where could people find you? I know you just launched your newsletter. So you, if you want to tell people how they could subscribe to that, but what, where else could people find you and things that you're working on? You can find me in Austin, Texas with Daniel. You could find me at the Cheesecake Factory. You could find me via Workweek Go to Millions. You could subscribe to my newsletter. You could read it. You could click my ads. That would be awesome. Um, you could find me on LinkedIn where I share memes and you could find me on Twitter where I'm fighting for my life and I really hate Twitter. So anything I tweet, just so you know, I'm embarrassed, but I'm doing it. I'm out here. So follow me in any of those places and we could be best friends. She also has a pretty big following on LinkedIn. She's being humble and her newsletter is just about across 3000 marketers and founders. So, and you get to get more tips than you're getting on this podcast here. So I would subscribe today if anybody's listening. Thank you. Well, Ari, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on my podcast, being my 100th guest. I know we've planned you having a 100th guest for a while. I know you probably should have been guest number one, but you were a little shy back then (laughs) to come on podcast. But now I'm glad you get to be episode 100. Thank you. 
all of what you said is true and love you so so much honey bunny see you guys later thanks for having me bye thanks so much for listening tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators if you haven't already please consider subscribing to the marketing millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating it helps bring more marketers into our community